This is The Plural of You, the podcast about people helping people. I'm Josh Morgan, and in this episode, we'll explore a few ways that you can help the women's rights movement. I was talking with an old friend of mine not long ago named Kyle Mercury. And as we were catching up, he mentioned that he'd reached a point in his life where he wanted to do whatever he could to help others. He told me he was especially interested in supporting women's rights and young people who identified as LGBTQ. He felt strongly about those issues, he said, and he wanted to be more helpful there. But the impression I got as I talked with Kyle is that he was eager to make a difference, but he didn't necessarily know where to start. And that got me thinking about what I would do or what any of us could do to get more involved. So I decided to take a look into some solutions related to women's rights and save the LGBTQ solutions for another time. And that's because each one really deserves its own episode. I realized pretty quickly that women's rights issues cover a lot of ground. Just for example, there's the gender wage gap. There's the lack of representation for women in many industries and in positions of power. There's the ways in which women may be treated in their daily lives that men don't deal with as often and on and on. I did some research into these issues, and I was intrigued by three causes that I didn't know much about, and I thought you'd like to learn more about them, too. The first was something called financial feminism, and this is a body of thought that advocates for women to have greater access to financial services, for women to be paid more fairly, and to not have to depend on men for their financial well-being, things like that. Financial equality among genders hasn't been that common for most of human history, but activists have been working to change this. A couple of activists who have helped me understand all of this are Kara Perez and Tanya Hester. Kara is the founder of Bravely, an online community for women who want to learn more about financial literacy. And Tanya is an author and writer at the blog Our Next Life, where she writes about her experiences since she retired at 38 years old. Together, they host the podcast The Fairer Sense, and Kara was kind enough to talk with me about why they do the work they do. I would say the reason we started the podcast is because we felt like literally and figuratively there were not enough women's voices in the financial realm. If you look at some of the most popular business and personal finance podcast, it's a lot of straight white men. And that's great, but that will really only get you so far because that's one experience. So Tanya and I decided, okay, let's talk about how money affects our lives as women. And rather than doing the kind of same old, same old of here's how you save money at the grocery store, or here's how you make $10,000 online a month. You know, we wanted to talk about it from a day to day and a more nitty gritty perspective, because this is how women are living. You know, we talk about things like financial feminism, like the pay gap, like how emotional labor factors into our professional and personal lives and how that affects our income and our spending. We think of it as shining a light on how the world currently is and opening up the conversation to how can we make this better? How can we inform people who might not be aware of this? How can we make the people who are living this feel heard? And what can we do in our lives as individuals to create change? And we certainly, we try very hard on the podcast not to give prescriptive advice, (laughs) but we want people to feel when they listen to a show that they can leave and say, okay, I learned something and I'm going to kind of either sit with myself and see how I can challenge myself, or I'm going to enact change in my daily life to try and bring around this greater societal change. 
What are some examples of changes that you've talked about on the podcast that you would recommend to more people? By far, our second most downloaded episode is our one on emotional labor. That really hit a chord with a lot of people. Emotional labor is this very invisible thing. It's not like, oh, I was moving pounds of cement kind of labor. (laughs) You know, it's, I have to watch my tone when I talk to my boss or I have to make my coworker think that was his idea. Otherwise he'll get angry. Or it's, how do I tell my partner that he needs to actually register what's in the fridge so he knows what we need so I don't have to keep the running, you know, grocery list in my head. It's kind of intangible, but it's a huge burden. So something that actually a listener wrote into us, a male listener, said that he started doing an emotional labor invoice in his relationship uh, with his wife. And he would write down when he was doing emotional labor and when he felt his wife was doing emotional labor so that he could track how much they were each doing and how it was affecting the relationship. So if you are a nitty gritty type of person, that's a very tangible thing you can do. Do you have a template for that? Because I suddenly feel like I should be keeping an invoice like that too. <laughs> and we should make one. Honestly, we should have uh, Stephen as the listener's name send us what he's doing. Um, but I think in large part, a lot of the things we talk about is is really awareness and just for a lot of people, just hearing the term emotional labor, it's a brand new term for them. So having conversations with your partner and saying. I think I'm doing a lot of emotional labor and I think it's in X, Y, and Z ways. How can we make this more equitable is really a huge, powerful step. And it's not just in romantic relationships. It's in platonic ones as well. You know, hey, Susie, I feel like I'm always the one making plans for us. Could you plan our next night out sort of thing? Kara's suggestions about emotional labor go straight to the core of gender inequality. We all know women and men are born with unique characteristics, but Our assumptions about gender are rooted in more than biology. Social science would suggest that gender is far more, well, socially formed. The beliefs and traditions we're exposed to when we're young lead to differences in our personalities, in the choices that we make, and in our interactions with others. Inequalities are created when society rewards some of the resulting characteristics, like those that are considered quote-unquote masculine, and then minimizes others, like many of those that are considered quote-unquote feminine. Historically speaking, this imbalance has been the standard practice all around the world, especially when it's involved power or money. And until recently, women have been shut out of both, but that's gradually changing. I asked Kara her thoughts on why American society in particular developed this way. She pointed out that this arrangement doesn't just affect women. It also affects another underrepresented group. I would say since the United States has formed, it was formed by, you know, the founding fathers. It was built by white men and they othered everyone else. So, you know, people of color, not really people in the eyes of founding fathers, women, not really people They didn't get a voice in how we built our system. And now here we are hundreds of years later and we are still operating in that same system. So the paradigm that we live in is set up to benefit white men and everyone else is really playing catch up. So it comes down to both the idea of like, you know, women not being able to vote until 1920, people of color not being able to really vote until the mid to late sixties and the barriers that are still in place for that, as well as representation. When we think about a politician, all of our presidents, except for one, have been white men and they have all been men. Um, when we think about who gets to be a senator, who gets to be a doctor, who gets to be a lawyer and who are we seeing on TV and who are we seeing in the movies that are playing these roles? 
that reinforces the structure we're already in. So I would say to take a very long view of it is the founding fathers set us up in this paradigm that we have then reinforced by keeping women and people of color out of power structures. And just now, just in the last 50 years, really, women and people of color have been able to kind of knock on the door and say, hey, 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 I'm here and I'm demanding more. And the power structures are shifting very slightly, but it's hard to go against hundreds of years of, well, a woman stays home and a man brings home the bacon and people of color can be janitors, but they can't be doctors. So we have to see new images of people so that the regular people, the people in the real world can believe, oh, I can be president. Oh, I can be a doctor and I'm going to go to school and do that. So once we can see new images and once we can change the power structures, we can create actual change in day-to-day life. Kara told me that she's been aware of issues like these for most of her life. She explained to me that she's biracial, half white and half Dominican, but she usually passes as white. She was also outdoorsy and liked playing sports more than other girls around her. So she often struggled with knowing how to express herself from one setting to the next. As she got older, she decided that she wanted to work on behalf of others and herself to help everyone feel more comfortable being themselves. She finished college in 2011 with an English degree in the wake of the Great Recession. Instead of moping about the brutal job market and about her student loans, she resolved to take ownership of her situation. She discovered a love for finance in the process and for helping women like her build their financial confidence. In addition to the events that she hosts through her company, she enjoys building a platform with Tanya around the Ferrisense podcast, not only to share insights from women with other women, but with men too. The podcast is a place for all of us to come and learn. And Tanya has been very upfront about how she's kind of gone through her own journey with identifying as a feminist and stepping into more feminist sort of roles and activism later in her life or later in her career specifically. And I think it's so important for us to put out the podcast and for me to put out my events. And I know Tanya has some events and with her blog as well to say, hey, here's what we believe. Here's why we believe it. Here are our experiences. But this is always a place that we can all be learning. And that's why we always really stress on the podcast. Tell us your stories. Reach out to us because we want to continue to grow and we want to be challenged. And I want to know if someone's like, "Uh, hey, you said this thing and it was wrong. Please let me know. I'm not always right. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So for someone that would be interested in helping you and your cause for greater financial feminism, where would you recommend they could start? First and foremost, treat the women and the girls in your life like people. I know that sounds kind of silly, but so often anything for women gets what Tanya and I call the shrink it and pink it treatment, which is people just shrink it and slap some pink sparkles on it and say, now it's for girls. (laughs) But that can be very patronizing and not every woman likes pink or sparkles. I happen to love sparkles, but that's not every woman. (laughs) So when you are talking about whatever with women, but particularly money, understand that They can grasp the same concepts that you can grasp. And um, we don't need to be talked down to or condescended to in order to grasp something. And then the second thing, and this is a huge action item, is talk to the woman in your life about how much money you make, especially coworkers or especially if you know you're in the same industry as a woman in your life. Share your income or share the percentage of the salary raise you got this year because 
It doesn't matter what race or age or industry you're in, women are underpaid. So the more people can start breaking down this taboo around talking about salary, the more women will benefit from that. Because if you're both graphic designers and you're making 90 grand a year and she's making 75 grand a year, that's going to impact the amount that she can invest at. That's going to impact her retirement. That's going to impact her spending. So if you say, hey, I make 90K, now she knows she can go to the boss and say, hey, I deserve to be making 90K. So that is something I really encourage men to talk about with women is how much money they're making. And I'll add something else you can do to help promote financial feminism. Listen to the Fairer Sense podcast. It's like Kara said earlier, she and Tanya cover the financial issues that women are actually facing and not the superficial stuff. I've learned a lot from listening to them, so check them out. The second women's rights cause I found while digging for my friend Kyle was the Equal Rights Amendment. This is a proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would guarantee legal equality for Americans regardless of their sex. It was co-authored by a women's rights activist named Alice Paul in the early 20th century, and it's been floating in the halls of Congress, unratified, since the 1920s. Polls have shown in recent years that roughly 9 out of 10 Americans said they believe the Constitution should affirm equal rights for women and men. And one poll from 2016 showed that 8 out of 10 believed the Constitution already did that. But the surprising thing is, it doesn't. Our Constitution still does not encourage equal rights in areas like employment and earnings, in ownership rights over business and property, or protections from sexual assault, just to name a few. I asked an expert named Krista Niles if she could help me better understand the ERA. She's a marketing and civic engagement coordinator at the Alice Paul Institute, a not-for-profit based at the late activist home in New Jersey. The Institute carries Alice Paul's work into the present. They host leadership programs for young women and educate the public about gender equality topics, including the ERA. I spoke with Krista about the opposition to the amendment since it seems like most of us support the idea behind it already. The argument I've seen against the Equal Rights Amendment or the primary argument I've seen is that uh, passing an amendment like this would somehow violate uh, like the traditional norms that we have about gender and family. Is that the major argument against passing something like this or is there something more going on? That is one of the primary arguments, but there are a a list of things. And so I'm going to take you back to the 1970s. There was a huge push um, starting in 1972 where the ERA made it out of Congress. It went out to the states for ratification. And in the United States, the way ratification works is with a proposed amendment to the Constitution, you have to have two thirds of the states vote for ratification, vote for that amendment. Within a couple of years, a, a large number of states had ratified it. And then uh, you started to have a little bit of a backlash of the anti-ERA's movement. And they were very successful in using some kind of popular fears that were happening. One of them definitely was it's going gonna, it's gonna to disrupt the nuclear family. Other arguments were that it was going to end Social Security benefits for spouses. The ERA is going to force women into combat. And I think that's one argument that has now 
kind of come to pass in that women are now allowed to go into military combat. Another argument that was used against the ERA is that it will eliminate child support for any woman who is divorced and needs that income to help raise the children. There are two other really interesting arguments. One was that it was a a power grab from the federal government. Elected officials who really believe in states' rights, um, they were seeing that as a power grab and they weren't interested in having the federal government have any more power over them. The last one is about gay marriage, that it would it would enable that to happen or it would somehow be promoting of that. And and that now that we've seen, you know, like gay marriage is now a protected right in the, in the U.S. And so those are some of the primary arguments. And you will see a lot of those arguments still happening today in various states that are still trying to ratify the ERA. Krista explained that Congress gave states a total of 10 years to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment through 1982. The amendment seemed well on its way to ratification early on, but during that time, legislators and executives in four states rescinded the ratifications. From what I can gather, these rescissions mostly happened because of the efforts of anti-ERA activists, and they created confusion about the amendment's future across the country. So by the time the deadline came in 1982, 35 states had ratified, but that was three short of the 38 states needed. Representatives have reintroduced the ERA in every congressional session since then, but this is the limbo that it's been stuck in. Krista and the Alice Paul Institute want to rebuild the momentum. Absolutely. And as we started talking on this podcast, it it is remarkable how many people have never heard of the Equal Rights Amendment. And those that have seem to be incredibly surprised when I tell them that it never ratified in 1982. And it's it's a phenomenal thing to watch somebody's face fall, especially um, a teenage girl or an older woman even who might have been a participant in some of the ERA marches during the 1970s and early 80s. And you realize that they didn't know their country does not guarantee them constitutionally protected equality. And then I coach them into joining the advocacy committee. And it's a, it's a pretty easy sell from that point forward. I noticed while talking with Krista that she's super humble about her background. She started her working life as a photojournalist. And in 2002, she won a Pulitzer Prize for breaking news photography with the New York Times for their coverage of the September 11th attack. Later, she transitioned to working with youth-oriented nonprofits, and then she went back to grad school for her master's in art history, and then she became active in feminist causes. I asked her how her career thus far led her to the Alice Paul Institute and to their mission. Looking at it now, it feels like a very natural transition. I was a journalist for 15, 16 years. And I loved journalism. And the reason I got into journalism was for the potential to create positive social change through informing and educating my readers and my community about what was going on, both locally and nationally. And that has always been kind of my North Star. From my graduate studies, I had originally really wanted to get into art museums. And when I moved east to be closer to my husband's parents, the Alice Paul Institute was hiring a marketing person. I was like, that sounds like a lot of fun. I honestly had not heard much about Alice Paul prior to joining the staff uh, at the Institute. And over the past year and a half, we've been really working on reconnecting 
with her work to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed and to make it more popular, make it more present. As the Me Too movement is happening, as more and more women's rights, women's issues, the women's marches are happening, um, there is a huge groundswell. And I'm here to be a part of that movement. In a perfect world, well, in a perfect world, the ERA would already be passed, I suppose. But uh, yes, yes. (laughs) In a perfect world, like say we all got up tomorrow and the way was clear for the ERA to be ratified. What would that process look like? Like what's what's left to do? That the answer to that is both complex and simple. I'll start with a simple one. The simple one is just to educate people about what the Equal Rights Amendment is and what it can do. One of the things that I have been doing, and we will be launching a redesign of a website dedicated to informing others about the Equal Rights Amendment. And the website is equalrightsamendment.org. That is going to be a great resource for readers. But Legally, the the complexity of trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified, it has a lot to do with the original deadline. So there are currently two paths that are being pursued to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. One is called the three-state strategy. And what that will do is challenge the original deadline that was set for the ERA. If the courts rule that that deadline was unconstitutional, then what we hope will happen will be that we just need to get three additional states to ratify, and then the ERA becomes an amendment. Are there three states that look more likely than others? The exciting thing is that we are now down to one state. Oh. In 2017, the state of Nevada became the 36th state to ratify. And in 2018, Illinois became the 37th state to ratify the ERA. So right now, looking through the lens of the three-state strategy, we only need one more state in the country to ratify the ERA. Then we can push forward on the whole constitutionality of that original deadline. There's been a lot of movement happening, a lot of action happening in in the Carolinas, a lot of action happening in Florida and Tennessee. Those are the states that have the potential to become the 38th state. So we'll see. The other path towards ratification is called traditional legislation. And so that would basically reintroduce the Equal Rights Amendment and go through the whole ratification process again. Chris's point about ratifying the ERA and how it's both simple and complex at the same time is a good one. But she's put some serious hours into making the process easier for us to get involved with. That's what success is going to take. People like us getting involved. She also said something else to me about the Equal Rights Amendment that I really like. She said it's often talked about as a women's rights issue, but it's more than that. Men would see benefits, too. And it would also establish protections for transgender persons. That's why it's called the Equal Rights Amendment, not the Women's Rights Amendment. Before I let Krista go, I wanted to know what she found gratifying about her work at the Alice Paul Institute. What made her get out of bed every morning? It's not hard. I mean, I'm so energized by what is happening with the women's movement. 
And that goes beyond just women and girls. There are, there are so many young men and men that are part of this movement. I really believe this is not a women's issue. This is a social issue. This is about gender equity. This is about both genders being protected so that they both have access to education. They both have the same access to medical assistance. They both have the same access to not being discriminated against for jobs or the list is long. That to me is why I get about it. Like I get to make a small difference in helping people learn about what the Equal Rights Amendment can do. I get to make a small difference in helping somebody realize that they too can be an activist. And I get to help be a part of a movement that helps educate people as to why they should care about that. The third women's rights cause I found involves what's probably the most controversial of all women's rights issues, and that's reproductive rights. At first, I decided to focus on this subset of women's rights because there's so much more there than abortion. But I thought about it, and I decided that ignoring abortion wouldn't be fair to the theme of this episode. And that's because abortion rights are women's rights. The most vocal anti-abortion activists just seem like they're telling women what they can't do more often than they're protecting the unborn. To me, it's the opposite of meeting people where they are in life to help them. And unfortunately, that approach to abortion has been on a roll in the United States. The number of clinics offering abortions has declined since the 1980s, and so has the number of licensed abortion care providers. That's according to data from the Guttmacher Institute, a reproductive rights think tank based in Washington, D.C. I was reading about solutions related to this mess and wondering, what can someone like me or my friend Kyle do to help the situation? That's when I came across something called clinic defense. An activist named Sonia Mendoza was kind enough to talk with me about it. She's a training coordinator at a clinic defense organization called LA for Choice. On the weekends, Sonia shows volunteers how to safely escort patients into a reproductive health clinic in Los Angeles. According to her, reproductive rights and clinic defense are tied to all sorts of problems beyond pregnancy. But she often encounters people who don't share her perspective. Abortion stigma and strict abortion laws like really affect the most marginalized people. And the anti-abortion movement, which I would personally say is like a domestic terrorist movement, is super interested in doing whatever they can to stop people from having abortions. That includes harassment, assault, shaming. And a lot of the ways that they do it is they stand in front of clinics and try to convince people in any way that they can to not go inside. The sole reason we are there is to provide safety and comfort and a friendly face to someone who's walking into a clinic and may be subjected to harassment and abuse by anti-abortion protesters. So I'm trying to imagine a typical scene, like uh, say someone pulls up in a car and they appear to be a potential patient. I guess they see you with a vest on that says, you know, clinic escort or something similar. What happens from there? Every clinic is different 
Basically, what happens at the clinic that we volunteer at is the people drive into a parking lot. There's a couple of volunteers with vests in the back. When people come out of their cars, they say, hey, we're volunteers with the clinic. There's some protesters. They're going to yell at you. Can we walk you to the door? Um, Most people don't turn us down. But things can get confusing um, because there's a lot of noise usually from the protesters. You know, in a really tiny infinitesimal way, like you're having one interaction with someone that's going to last like 15 seconds. But like you're validating their decision. You're saying that their bodily autonomy is okay. Sonia spent a lot of time in her life advocating for reproductive rights, specifically abortion rights. She started volunteering as a clinic escort herself with an organization in Washington, D.C., but moved to Los Angeles a few years ago to be closer to her family in the area. She says she's passionate about these issues because so many of her friends and acquaintances have been affected by them. Sonia's also experienced abortion firsthand. She told me she's had two abortions, both of which occurred at home with medication and not at a clinic. So she can relate to what women and families may be feeling in precarious situations, including many of those who visit reproductive health clinics. That's why she's volunteered to defend them for so long and now trains other volunteers to protect them. I asked her what someone could expect as a clinic escort volunteer, and she was honest. It's not a volunteer job for everyone. Like It can be really triggering for people. I mean, especially at the clinic that we go to, like the noise and the yelling are just really out of hand sometimes. There's some protesters that bring a karaoke machine and play the song called Mother Let Me Live, and they like play it straight into the waiting room of the clinic. What? Yeah. It's just super loud at the clinic, which I have a lot of problems with sometimes. Like, I just can't handle it. But, I mean, we recommend that people volunteer no more than once a month. We leave a lot of room open for, like, people to take care of themselves. And we're always having conversations about, like, what are you going to do after you escort? Like, are you going to take yourself out for breakfast? Are you going to, like, go talk to a friend? How are you going to decompress afterwards? If you're interested in doing clinic defense, like it's really something you need to think about before you decide to get trained because it can be really triggering or it can just be really hard, like the noise and the yelling and like the constant barrage. I asked Sonia if she had any stories from clinic defense that stood out to her. And she described a scene to me that she'd witnessed because it had been on her mind a lot. For her, this story represents a structural context that often gets lost in discussions about abortion and reproductive rights. I went to the clinic on December 31st, 2017, so New Year's Eve, and I went to do the 930 shift at the clinic. I parked my car, I walked up to the clinic, and when I got there, there were some cop cars like in the parking lot, and they had basically like pulled over this family in a van. It was an older couple and a daughter and her boyfriend. We came to find out that the tags on their van were expired and they were going to take the van away, basically. The daughter actually had an appointment at the clinic, which she could not fulfill because she didn't have her ID. And this family got their van taken away which was their home that they lived in. It was a really sad, awful story. And I like to tell it because it's a good example of like all the different pillars of the state stopping someone from like making reproductive decisions. 
even though we're one of the most lenient states, there's still things that can stop people. You know, stuff like this, like that is an example of precarity and like precarity breeds poor health outcomes. Yes, domino effect. Yeah. What happened after all of that went down? They eventually just left um, because they were trying to figure out how to find a place to stay for the night. We stayed and tried to figure out like how we could help them, but eventually they just left and never came back. So it's a story about why the kind of work you do is important. Yeah, I mean, and it's an example of how precarity and barriers to healthcare are at every single step of the way. There's something that can stop you from getting what you need, whether it's money, whether it's laws, whether it's cops, whether <laughs> whether it's protesters. It's all kind of baked into the system that we've all agreed to be a part of, the society that we've all agreed to be a part of. And that's not necessarily a good thing. I think Sonia would agree that the most significant barriers to ending abortion stigma come through our culture. She talked with me about how the anti-abortion movement can push women and families into outcomes that are worse for them in the long run. And opponents of abortion often act without recognizing or even caring if their demands cause harm to others. When you are convincing someone or trying to convince someone to not go through this extremely personal decision that they're making for themselves to literally better their life, how is that not a personal, private thing? Like, why is it... Why are you interested in making it your problem? And, you know, regulating abortion and not letting people have abortion is a form of social control. It's a form of keeping people in a certain place, in a certain socioeconomic status, because having a child is a huge deal. Being pregnant is a, is a really big deal. When you don't want someone ha- to have an abortion, uh, when you don't want them to make that decision for themselves, you're forcing someone to have a child, which is yeah, terrifying. And all the, all the circumstances that come with that. Yeah. That's absolutely terrifying. So for people that may not be in Los Angeles, but are interested, are you part of a larger network? There's many different clinic defense organizations throughout the country, but they're all sort of disparate. It really depends on like where you are and like if there are protesters. The best thing to do is to Google like clinic defense in your state and things will probably come up. If you Google like clinic defense in your area and you don't find something, I can probably help you find it. You can email me at LA for choice and it's LA for like the number four, LA for choice at gmail.com. Now, what about if someone maybe they hear about clinic defense and they're like, well, maybe that's not for me, but I'd like to support in some other way. Do you have any advice as far as things that people could do? I would say like, If you're really interested in supporting people in your home area that need abortions that might not be able to get them, I would direct people to the National Network of Abortion Funds. All the funds are different, but like, like for instance, the one in California is a hotline um, that people can call and they can help people make appointments. They can help people get money for funds. They, they also do practical support. Like they help people with rides and childcare. There's like a lot of different abortion funds in every state that like do a lot of practical support for people that are trying to get abortions. I ended my chat with Sonia by asking the message she wanted to send to others through her work. I was really touched by what she said. 
It reminded me of something other guests have said to me on this podcast, that sometimes just showing up to share space with someone who needs help can make a difference. That's what Sonia and other clinic escort volunteers do for women around the country. And I can't help but admire the sacrifices that they make. I would say that like clinic escorting, it isn't a volunteer job. It is a form of community organizing. And it's, it's really about like showing up for people that are really vulnerable in that moment. That is an act of love. I think that like what we do is an act of love. I think that's like probably the most important thing about clinic escorting and why it can also be really emotional and triggering sometimes, but it's, it's an important thing to do and it's important for people to know about. These are the women's rights actions I came up with for you and for my friend Kyle to think about. I hope you've been inspired to look into them or at least tell someone you know about them. This is The Plural of You. I'm Josh Morgan and the show's website is pluralofyou.org. That's all for now. Thank you for being kind today. Take care.